Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm a host uh, for this episode. Today, I'm interviewing Roy Barsness about his book, Core Competencies of Relational Psychoanalysis, a guide to practice, study, and research, published by Rutledge in 2018. Roy Barsness is the founder and executive director of the Postgraduate Certificate Program in Relationally Focused Psychodynamic Therapy. He's also a professor at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and the Brookhaven Institute for Psychoanalysis. He was formerly the clinical director at Seattle Pacific University and a clinical associate professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry. He has been in independent practice for over 30 years. So welcome to the program, Roy. Thank you, Philip, and thank you for uh, being interested in this book and for uh, the New, Be- New Books Network to be willing to host me. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, thank you for, for writing this book, because I think a lot of our listeners are going to be interested um, in this book. So let's tell them sort of what it's about. And why don't we start with, just tell me, why did you write this book? Well, I am a professor and have taught uh, clinical courses forever. And um, one of the things that was happening with my students is that uh, I also teach at a school that's highly um, existential and has a strong psychoanalytic um, bent to it. But when our students would um, go off to their internships, they would come back and go, nobody understands me. Nobody understands what I'm trying to do, and I don't know what I'm doing. And um, they also had a sense that uh, the models that they were being exposed to, most of the manualized uh, programs and cognitive behavioral programs and DBT and that sort of thing, uh, were actually easy to um, access and easy to, in many ways, apply. And they had a deep sense of um, almost, oh, I did something. And so one day a student raised her hand and she said, you know, I have all this data, all this theory, and I don't know what to do. And I thought, you know what, that's on me, not on her. Um, And that's not only on me, but maybe on my profession. Like when we think of psychoanalysis, we don't have a common uh, canon of what actually does, um, does, um, is there any universal kind of practices that we practice in such a way that we could actually teach them if you do that, you know, this is what we all do. Um, And so I decided I had to um, uh, answer her question. So that was what was the uh, impetus of the book. And so uh, perhaps we'll talk about it a bit later down uh, in our interview, but I chose then to uh, do a a long-term qualitative study to try and determine if there were, in fact, universal practices that relational psychoanalysis do that could be taught and practiced. And basically, even though the book is titled Core Competencies, ultimately these become disciplines. They certainly aren't um, techniques because when we work relationally, it's far too idiosyncratic to say you can do this to this and that it applies to all. So ultimately, these became practices that... um, loaded, if you will, through my interviews into into this particular book. So definitely it was motivated uh, to answer a question of, of a student who said, you guys don't have it. I can't figure out what you're doing. I need help to try and understand that. Yeah. You know, it reminds me for the first time in a long time, I started trying to have a little bit of digital online presence and a website. And I was looking at what they say about how to have a good therapy website, and you need to be able to say what exactly you're doing for your clients. Um, and that might not be necessary for people who, clients who are familiar with psychoanalysis or psychodynamic therapy, but 
for a lot of patients who don't have a clue about CBT versus psychoanalysis, they kind of want to know when they're looking at your website or talking to you, you need to sort of be able to say, here's what I do. And it's not easy to do. Um, so I, I'm sympathetic to what you're doing for your students in this textbook. And I want to come back to these core competencies in a minute. But first, tell me a little bit more about the certificate program you you operate for. I, th- I think when I saw the acronym RFPT, what is RFPT? Sure. Um, if I could just back up one moment, Philip, the... Um... How this study, so actually when that student asked the question, then I thought, okay, so what do I do? And so I began actually mapping my own mind so that when I sit with the patient, what what kinds of things are going on in me? What am I paying attention to? What theoretical constructs are that are that I'm I pulling from in order to uh, sit with this patient and to make my interventions and to participate in the therapy? And so I came, uh, I came up with a... Um, a map of my own mind, which now has become an assignment for the student, um, that I thought, okay, so that's mine. Does it have any validity or reliability? And that's, um, that's why then I thought, well, then I need to go to the next step and um, uh, interview people to see um, if there is some sort of consistency. So when you say that about a website, I think it's really important and incumbent upon us to be able to explain to people what we do and why we do it and how we do it. Um, yeah. And so uh, that's that reminds what, me of what I heard. I think Adrian Harris, who's uh, has a chapter in your book. I heard her say once that she thought it'd be really good if candidates or students at the beginning of their studies sort of made a statement of what do you believe? Um, and then at the end of your studies, again, sort of what is your, your credo? I believe in um, it's a very good practice. And so, you're telling me that you looked at a map of your own mind, which I don't know what would that be in in research, eth, auto auto research or something. But we're going to get to more to your your research in a minute and what you did do. Um, but let's go back to the the acronym RFPT. Yes, well, that's an interesting one because the um, how did I'll tell you how it came to be. Uh, following the uh, publishing of this book, uh, I did a book tour. Um, and what happened that I discovered was, uh, that people were very, very eager about the book and about, um, having, um, further study. And so they were contacting me to, to either supervise them, you know, online because it was around the country kind of thing. Um, and, um, for more kind of access to this kind of material. And so what I got to thinking is I don't, didn't have, um, I'm not a, for, it was, this was before Zoom, uh, that we were all doing Zoom all the time, but I wasn't up for doing online education uh, and doing supervision in mass. And so I had this thought, I go, you know, why don't I take uh, three of my um, uh, teaching assistants I've had over the years who are well acquainted with my work. And do start training them to provide uh, online consultation, uh, and then that we would have two um, uh, in-person retreats a year for teaching theory and practice and all that sort of thing. And um, so it um, it really has taken off, and it's a hybrid program with uh, biweekly online on, online consultation with the trained trainers. And now we have a group of seven coming in this next year to also train for train. It's a two-year program. They've, they'll have completed that and then come into that program. Um, <clears throat> but it's been very exciting. It's highly experiential. Uh, we, we try to learn from case study uh, to theory rather than theory to case. And um, it's been really fun. The Relationally Focused Psychodynamic Therapy, that's an interesting title. Like, why did that come to be? And um, basically, in consulting with the people interested in the program, et cetera, they felt more comfortable with psychodynamic versus psychoanalytic. Um, and so that's how the program name came to be psychodynamic instead of psychoanalytic. Okay, so in case that went too fast for people. So RFPT is Relationally Focused Psychodynamic Therapy. And what that's... Um, so what is relational? If people say, well, what is relational? Um, 
psychoanalysis. Yeah. Well, this uh, relational psychoanalysis actually began as a movement in the 1980s uh, out of the um, NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Um, and the primary genitors were Lou Aaron, Neil Altman, Tony Bass, Jessica Benjamin, Philip Bromberg, uh, Jody Mesler Davies, Meryl Dimon, Emmanuel Gent, and Adrian Harris. And actually, the credo. Um, uh, reference that you just did with Adrian was actually Emmanuel Gent's uh, idea that uh, the, the the group really uh, held on to, and it really is, uh, was born and launched out of a radical alternative to um, the one-person drive theory, posited by earlier theoreticians like Freud and Klein and Winnicott, Kernberg, Kohut, into a two-person psychology. Um, that emphasizes the dyadic dynamic uh, flow of the therapeutic relationship. And this group of people um, were, were strongly influenced by uh, postmodernism, uh, feminist theory, liberation psychology, queer th- psychology, social construct- uh, st- uh, constructionism, and um, social regulation and the dyadic flow of change. And so it's more of a uh, method or meta theory uh, than it is, uh, you know, like a model. In fact, um, Adrian Harris is one of them, uh, among them, who uh, distinguish between a small R versus a large R. And small R are those who work out of mixed models, and capital R are those who are kind of committed to deeping and particularizing a relational tradition. There's not a divide in all of this, uh, just a healthy dialogue. Is Is it a is it a thing or is it a is it a process kind of idea? Yeah, so I I like the idea of the small R uh, versus the capital R in relational. Um, I I was trained in British um, object relations, roughly you know post uh, contemporary Kleinian. That could be considered a small R relational because um, it's not a drive theory, but. The capital R means specifically this this group that you this tradition you mentioned, beginning with those authors in mostly in New York. Is it is it mostly associated with the William Ellenson White Institute in New York? No, uh, the NYU program. Oh, uh, oh yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, okay. and I think uh, the person that certainly had it was definitely the the grandfather of it all was Stephen Mitchell, who unfortunately died very young. But part of his, and this is, again, where um, it was quite electric, I think, uh, because in the late 70s, he criticized psychoanalytic theory on homosexuality, charging that it was insufficiently psychoanalytic and overly moralistic. And this began to introduce the idea of uh, intersubjectivity and that um, there there was two minds going on, and one mind wasn't... um, uh, preferential over the other. Both had to be considered in the formation of the self and of the person. Um, and it, it, this holds to the understanding that they were talk, working on that acknowledged moments of failed witness within the therapeutic relationship that ultimately uh, leads to change. So, Okay. All right. And then I'm thinking, when I mentioned William Allen's and White, I guess that would be more, originally it was an inter- personal, which is, there's a lot of crossover between interpersonal and relational, but yeah, they are, they are different. Um, well, I want to go to these core, co- these, I don't think in the title it says seven core competencies, but I think you've, you've boiled it down to seven. What are these seven core competencies and how did you, um, who, who, <laughs> who's the canon, who decided about the, that there's seven? Was that your idea or is it kind of out there in the literature? Well, I don't know if you've ever done a, a qualitative research study, um, but um, it's actually, I think it's a, a wonderful way to study existential thought and theory. Um, but you have to, so when you come up with titles, uh, the titles have to be somewhere in the data that you have been gathering. And so you know, ultimately the researcher, in this case me, uh, chose these titles, but they were not... Um, they were they were grounded, if you will, in what had already had emerged through the um, through the process. So 
Do you want me to tell you a bit about the study? Yeah, because I love grounded theory. I think we should be using it more in psychoanalysis. And let me tell you my brief understanding. You you interviewed a lot of uh, analysts and began to sort of code what you were hearing and what they were telling you. And through this uh, disciplined process that aligns with grounded theory research, you came up with, you discovered in a sense from your research roughly these seven competencies that a, a relational analyst might have. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Very nice. Yes. Um, so in this case, and you know, grounded theory analysis works so nicely, uh, or grounded theory analysis works so nicely with, um, with um, psychoanalytic work because it is, um, you're gathering things simultaneously um, and, and constructing as you go. It's kind of a co-created um, event uh, in the interviewing process and, and those kinds of things. So what I did is um, I con uh, contacted many different people um, who were all at least 25 to 30 years in, uh, in practice. Uh, some of them were, were original people within the uh, founding of the relational movement that I just referred to. Um, they identified as relational analysts and um, were um, you know, interested in participating in the process. Um, so we would interview and we'd work through that interview. I would uh, tally it or write it up. They would review it. We would clean it up to make sure that it uh, clearly represented their ideas and that sort of thing. Um, then um, what, what you do is, even as you're interviewing, but as, as, as you begin to analyze the data, uh, you continue to look for what are the common things that keep coming up. And with this, I used um, a research assistants so that it wasn't just me, but the three of us uh, would, would uh, read through all of the data, um, write down all that we thought uh, was, were pertinent points, we then compare and contrast our, our differences. And we ended up with a thousand different um, uh, data points to which we then kept folding down and down and down and down and down because several of them, of course, would be overlap, et cetera. And uh, each code can uh, originally the, uh, resulting in the 1000 codes, each code contained one complete idea from each interviewee. And then through the constant compar comparison method, these seven uh, disciplines uh, emerged. So that's how that happened. What I did do, because I wanted to really, I'm, I'm sure it had to do with my insecurity of, of, of qualitative research and, and wanting to make sure that I had covered all my bases. I did two other things. I then, to try and enhance confidence in the results of the GTA, I compared it to the landmark meta-analysis. I don't know if you know of that conducted by Blage and Hilsenroth in 2000, and it was reported by Shedler in 20, I'm not sure what year, uh, in the American Psychologist, where they had six um, uh, sort of foundational practices of psychoanalysis, and Lou Aaron also used this in his book, I believe, Meeting of the Minds. So I wanted to compare my study to that study, and um, there was a very high correlation and then there was a 2008 symposium on uh, relational psychoanalytic technique that I went through all of those transcripts, um, also did sort of a, a, a smaller um, um, uh, grounded theory analysis, and then compared the study to that. And so the results of the study then um, came out of all of that interview and data, and then the naming of them came through sort of common kind of words that uh, showed up in the, in the study. Okay. And, and so these seven competencies, um, which form a sort of a bulk of the, the book, and I'll ask you in a minute sort of what else is in the book, but a, a good part of it is these, um, and there's, you invited, I think, seven different writers, authors, each one to write uh, an essay about these seven core competencies. And you really assembled a, a really stellar cast. Um, and I'd, I'd like to know about how you found, found those people and um, did they easily uh, you know, agree to write? Have these 
essays been published before, or they were are they original for this book? Yeah. Well, you know, and sometimes edited text can feel more like a compilation and can yeah. have a little bit of a herky-jerky kind of thing to it. And, and of course, this one is going to have some of that as well. But why it differs is that um, there is these seven competencies. And so I wanted to have authors that I either knew or had read who were able to uh, take these competencies and make them sing, if you will. And so uh, there is a flow of the of the of the writing consistent with the uh, findings of the competencies, and so I think it reads um, you know differently than other other edited texts. Um, how did they? I, I tell you, people they were absolutely wonderful. It was an absolutely wonderful experience for me because each of the contributors were very eager to participate. And were very generous with their time and their words and their efforts and excited about the project. I do give uh, Lou Aaron um, a lot of credit for that, perhaps, because uh, Lou is a very important figure or was a very important figure in uh, relational psychoanalysis. And so being able to, uh, he was really behind this project. And so I didn't have to work too hard to say, you know, lose behind this project, can you help me out kind of thing. Um, and so I knew several of the people. I had had them participate uh, with me in uh, a lecture series that I do here in Seattle and had um, worked with them in that way or had read their work and, and asked them if they would uh, be willing to participate. And I bet it was in some ways a... Um maybe a little easier or a pleasure for some of them because they weren't having to write an original article for a peer-reviewed journal. Um, they could write about what they know really well. And I think some of them, I recognize material that maybe I'd read in some of their previous writings. So they kind of were able to bring together um, things they'd written in the past and really zero in on, on these seven core competencies. Why don't you tell us who were some of these? Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say with that, that, um, Several of them uh, had been, uh, probably two-thirds had been uh, republished. And so, you know, a writer, we're all very, um, you know, when we write something, we're, we're, we want it to be left alone. <laughs> um, but well, I was so grateful because I then uh, edited um, all of these, um, these papers um, to... Uh, line up with the research that had been shown and all that. And many of them had to be uh, cut uh, in and reshaped and reformed. And they were very, very gracious about that. Um, and, you know, I also had done a ton of research uh, to locate uh, these different, these, these chosen ones, if you will, for the, this uh, piece. So, but you wanted to know who they, who? Yeah, okay. some of them. Yeah, well, the seven competencies that emerged uh, were, the first one is core competency, uh, therapeutic intent. And this actually became a, a new contribution to the field. No, no one had talked about this before, and the Blage and Hilsenroth didn't cover this either. Uh, but Steve Tublin had written an article um, quite some time ago on if, in fact, um, relational psychoanalysis is in somewhat a free-for-all and there's a lot left to the discretion of the of the therapist then we better know why we're doing what we're doing and uh that and and in the credo that adrian harrison uh you heard re, um, report from emmanuel gant's idea is that that's that same idea and this this is true for all therapists that if you don't know what you're doing then if you don't know your why you won't know what to do and so this is a very important chapter of establishing the why or, or the, the what of your why um, in, in psychotherapy. This is actually an assignment now that I have my students do is that they have to create what is the therapeutic outcome of, of a good psychotherapy and that that holds as sort of a, um, an anchor point for the, all, the, all the choices that we might make. So when we get lost, uh, we would go, now, why did I do that? And what does this have to do with anything any, anyway? And did it advance the treatment? Um, core competency two is uh, therapeutic stance attitude. And 
Nancy McWilliams has written a lot uh, for our field and has written, uh, did a wonderful job on this therapeutic stance attitude. One of the things that uh, did, did come up in my work, in my research, is the idea of radical openness. Um, and what I comment about that I would make is when we look at relational work, the radical uh, radical openness is not this idea that we just are non-judgmental and we have to be radically open to a, a patient's story in life. The radical openness is: Are we radically open to our own process when we're in the in the um, in the in the in the work of our patients? And so that's a that was another huge uh, kind of finding. Uh, we uh, Stuart Pizer's article uh, uh, gets to deep listening, affective attunement, and as relational psychoanalysis is affect focused uh, rather than say mind, um, there's a there's a um, expectation that we're constantly working and thinking through deep affective moments that are aroused between the patient and the therapist. It's not just uh, uh, this idea of having the patient report their feelings or getting them to feel something. It's actually a deep, deep listening and alignment with attuning to the affective states that are emerging in the intersubjective space and how therapist and patient are able to use that. the core competency, relational dynamics are there and then and here and now. Uh, that sounds traditional psychoanalytic in terms of transference um, and perhaps counter-transference. But uh, Lou uh, takes this into a whole new idea um, around uh, how uh, what is being co-created between the patient and the analyst. Um, and so we now consider questions like, what is being stirred in me? Why am I reacting this way? How am I impacting? And how am I being uh, allowing myself to be immersed, et cetera? And a move from enlightening the patient about his life to participating in the intersubjective space. Stephen Knobloch, who is a, a jazz, jazz musician, did a nice job on this patterning and linking. And when we look at relational psychoanalysis, you see we've moved away from... Um, the patient as an object to be analyzed to two subjects in the room. So we're not only looking at the patterning and linking of the patient's past, we're looking at how the patterning and linking is uh, operating um, within the thera- uh, therapeutic encounter and paying deep attention to how are we getting into our own story, our own uh, creative way that is not only history, but it's also proscriptive. And he um, uses his jazz mind, if you will, to, to talk about the improvisation of patterning and linking. Karn Marotta, who has written a lot about enactments, because um, one of the things, if you're working from a relational perspective, is that um, historically, countertransference issues were uh, to be parked outside the room. And probably in the 70s and 80s, um, movements beyond this uh, even prior to um, the relational movement, um, began to see that countertransference was a vital aspect of the therapeutic process and that it was to be used, that in some ways our countertransference um, reactions, they were always um, um, initiated, if you will, unconsciously from the patient's story as well. And so consequently, there's going to be more um, uh, conflict, if you will, more um, uh, relational activity that's going on between patient and therapist that can be made very useful uh, for uh, change and transformation. Then Brad Strawn and I wrote the the chapter, uh, the seventh competency on courageous speech, discipline, spontaneity. And Brad is a dear friend of mine and colleague. And we happened to be at a conference one time and realized that we had um, similar as both similar cases. And one of the cases that I present in this chapter is of um, a highly aroused erotic, um, uh, at the time I would have called it transference, now I would call it a highly aroused um, intersubjective experience between me and my patient and how terrified I was um, and New on the new in the field, and there wasn't literature to help me understand what to do with this, other than to interpret it away. And the more I would interpret it, the more it would would grow, and the more I would become absent. And I finally um, 
broke down, if you will, and entered in my subjective experience of what was going on. And everything shifted in the work where the patient no longer had to fight so hard to arouse me to her deep affect of hurt wounds and hurt. Now that my, my own experience of her was now present between us. And so um, I'm a huge fan of how important it is that we speak our minds to our patients and our experiences. One of my lines, I think, is the patient has the right to our minds and our affects. Coupled with that is that we're not reckless, that we're thoughtful, and therefore we also offer what does it mean to have um, a discipline to our courageous speech and, and still remain spontaneous. So that's mm-hmm. how the seven came to be and how the different authors uh, participated in that. I didn't expect to go on that long, Philip. <laughs> yeah, well, now, that's, now people know what's in the book because, although that's not all that's in the book, because um, in some ways, would you describe this as a handbook? Handbooks are generally thought of as ways into um, a discipline or a body of literature that relatively accessible ways and, and usable. And I, I think this is, this, this is that kind of a book for people who want to really know and learn relational psychoanalysis. If I was going to teach a course on relational psychoanalysis, I think this would be my textbook for doing a, I don't know, 12 or 16 week series. But besides these seven essays on the core competencies, what, what are the other parts of the book? Yeah, there's, so there's three units. The first unit was, is um, my writing of, of the research that actually I would say uh, a better one is uh, coming out in Psychoanalytic Psychology Journal uh, in the spring. Although that particular article um, is, even though it might be more precise, it does not include my um, comparative analysis with the other, um, with the Blas and Hilsenroth and the symposium. And then um, John uh, Cornelius, who's a psychiatrist, has uh, written a, a really lovely article defending, if you will, uh, about the eff- efficacy of psychoanalysis over um, um, cognitive behavioral work and uh, medications. Uh, and as an MD, he, he's, he's very competent in talking about those two and the um, power, if you will, of uh, the comparison of the three and the, and the eff- effectiveness of psychoanalysis. And then Adrienne Harris, uh, has, I want, uh, she wrote on the uh, tradition and the founding of the, of the, um, of the movement. What, um, there, there's lots of stuff that's going on uh, beyond the, you know, that have continued to um, develop. Uh, one is uh, how uh, interpersonal neurobiology and and the and the brain, uh, Alan Shore, Siegel, and those those researchers find a lot of simpatico with relational psychoanalysis, and so uh, Alan Shore has a has a chapter in here under New Frontiers on the right brain and psychoanalysis. Also, uh, Carl Marshall and I wrote a um, chapter on sex, gender, and desire. Uh, because, as I said earlier about Stephen Mitchell, um, the relational movement uh, has been being influenced by uh, postmodern theory and queer psychology and that sort of thing has opened up the conversation around sex and gender in very powerful ways. And um, the same with culture that uh, uh, Usha Tumalanara uh, wrote uh considering culture from a psychoanalytic pr- uh, process um, perspective, because now we're looking at context and tradition and culture and not Western individualism as a primary means of understanding the human mind and condition and move from I-ness, if you will, to we-ness. And um, those are my words, but uh, she wrote a lovely chapter on considering culture. Two other things came to be uh, when Brad and I were writing our chapter on uh, courageous speech, discipline, spontaneity, at the end of that chapter, we go, wait a minute, there's a whole other chapter here that has to be written, and that's on the ethics of a relational perspective. Because if we are entering deeper into the human condition with another human being and putting ourselves on the line in a, non, in a, new, in a new way that's not objective and protective, 
then we have to look at a new uh, paradigm for what our ethics are. And uh, we cover uh, four things in there that I, I'll try not to go too far into that. But one of them is ultimately um, we have to trust the integrity of the of the relational um, dyad that is emerging. And even though we pay attention to our our uh, and not pay attention, we follow the ethical guidelines of our of our profession and of our of our state laws and ethics. But something deeper is being called forth in us. And here we use Levinas and Buber as our philosophical guides into an ethical stance with, um, with our patients. And then um, another good colleague of mine realized that when we are working from a relational perspective um, and things are, are regressed and we get, we get lost and we're participating in this, how do we take care of ourselves in such a, a much deeper kind of intimate work than what we were originally trained in? And then lastly, any good, um, I think, theory has to be critiqued. And John Mills was very generous with me, me uh, actually editing his entire book down into a 7,000-word uh, chapter on, on his critique of relational psychoanalysis. And Stephen Kuchuk did a lovely response to it. So we had a critique of the very thing that we were talking about as well. Yeah. Speaking of sort of ethics and culture, um, I've this year sort of made a commitment that I want to be an an anti-racist clinician um, because I think that that systemic racism is, is probably the greatest injustice in our society that just kind of persists um, on and on. And we all need to be doing our part and I want to do my part. So I'm making a point of in my interviews here, bringing up questions of race and culture, um, be, especially because I think psychoanalysis in, in some ways has gotten a bad name um, in divorcing the, the psyche from the cultural and, and the ethical and the political. And um, I think relational psychoanalysis is set up well and, and attempts to, to, to avoid that split and to integrate uh, so I just wondered, and, and you have a chapter um, in the book on on this matter, but I wondered wanted to hear what what you wanted to say about that. Well, thanks, Philip. That's uh, this is such a uh, sobering topic, and I do think that our very indi- Western individualistic, ego focused, uh, mind focused therapies have not been very transportable. Uh, into working with difference and contrast. And, um, and so we've stayed quiet in our clinics. And yet I think psychology has a huge potential to have impact on not only people in our practices, but in the world. In fact, several years ago, I was, I was bothered by the privilege of being a private practitioner. I thought, does my work make any difference? I wrote something to the effect of, um, Lessons from the Couch, uh, Psychoanalysis and Social Advocacy, I think is what it was called, because I was really wondering, does our work make a difference? And I do believe that it does. Um, But we have to, and I think the uh, psychoanalytic, relational psychoanalytic model uh, is uniquely positioned um, to speak to uh, cultural issues, uh, given its feminist theory, liberation psychology, and the things I've been talking about. And it's a uh, contrast to this idea of individualism and independence. Um, Tamala Nara, um, who is the person we talked about um, in this chapter on culture, uh, she says this in the book. She says, relational psychoanalytic scholars influenced by hermeneutic and social constructive tradition, traditions have begun to place social context at the center of intrapsychic and interpersonal experiences and have called attention to the inherent dynamics of power and marginalization as they influence the practice of psychotherapy itself. And what I've learned uh, and is that psych- relational psychoanalysis, if we go back, is a, is a multi-model kind of uh, method, is that it builds upon early object relations theory, understanding that indeed parental figures are responsible for seriously distorting subsequent relatedness, but believes that this distortion is less related to arrested development than it is to setting in motion a complex process through which a child builds an interpersonal world. 
And here then we have to take into account so much. And um, one of the things that we have failed to do, I think we've lived so much of our work on um, cause and effect kind of models, like mom did this, so this is why you're this way. And good God, we know that we are very complex people who go through very many complex formations and we are formed in so many different relational contexts. I was just thinking during this latest, um, well, the last, our culture in the last four years, and I was also thinking about the last um, 10 months or whatever of the political stuff, and I got to thinking how this country is so politically uh, energized all the time and how that's impacting even and, and traumatizing or aligning and how much it forms one person's identity. A person is this or that or this or that and lives in these binaries. And so we take in um, a much more complex process through which we build uh, our, our lives and relational psychoanalysis, I think, is on the forefront of understanding difference and contrast and celebrating that. I'm a big uh, Boober fan. And lots of times people understand, you know, understand the I-thou encounter as some sort of uh, simpatico or sameness and ah, we met each other kind of thing. But actually what he's saying is that genuine meeting comes through contrast, through difference, and our capacity to engage the different other and to receive the, the other. And I think that, um, uh, that relational psychoanalysis, as I said, is on the forefront of that. And if you have, a, if we have a moment, I want to say there are four particular constructs that I that are fleshed out in the book that I do believe address issues of race and class and gender that have been very useful to me not only in my clinical work but in how I try to live my life within our complicated and this highly nuanced uh, culture. Do we have a moment for that? Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, the theory of intersubjective intersubjectivity that I've been sort of going on going off on in this is um, is one primary theory of relational psychoanalysis. You know, Philip, the thing that I have noticed about myself and about everyone else around us is that we fear the stranger, the one who is not us. And when we fear, we isolate, and when we isolate, we project our negative assumed fears onto the other. And when we move into a not-me stance uh, towards a different one, they are the problem, not me. And, we and, and then we objectify the other to remain safe. But whenever we turn towards the other as a person of interest with whom to engage, a switch goes on in us. And it's kind of terrifying, but it holds our attention in a different way. I had this uh, wonderful experience on Friday um, doing a group supervision. And... Um, uh, I'd asked one of the participants, the, the patient had been um, talked about. And so she said, yes, I do have all these thoughts. And so she had this very, very clear analysis and, um, and idea about this patient and all that was uh, she would thought might have been influencing this case and how she might diagnose this case, et cetera, et cetera. And when she stopped, I said, so tell me, when you were listening to this story, what was going on inside of you? What did you feel? And her entire countenance changed. She said, oh my God, I feel all this and I feel all that and I feel this and I feel that. And all of a sudden that patient was moved from being an object to be studied to a person that had actually hit something within this therapist. And in that hitting, there was a new sense of this patient's story and of this person's life. In fact, years ago, I changed my entire supervision model uh, where we rarely talk about the patient per se and what I might do or whatever. I really do try to get into the deep affective unconscious states of the, of the therapist and their response to the, the patient. And that's that idea of moving away from two objects in the room to the intersubjective space. Mm -hmm. um, and so validating process over content, affect over cognition and surrender uh, versus authoritarian. And if you listen to those words, it seems like they're translatable into um, our culture and society at large. Very quickly, uh, you can imagine that when that happens, there's going to be misunderstandings, there's going to be misreads. In fact, if I, 
if I were to write, I'm trying to figure out what a title of my book would be, but it might be The Flawed Therapist or The Imperfect Therapist or Therapy as a Misread. Um, because I believe that um, I can never read a person uh, in any particular way, that I'm always giving an approximation. And it's when we work out that approximation that um, transformation and change becomes possible. And so consequently, I'm, I'm off a lot. And sometimes those offs um, might, we might get into tanglements and entanglements and get whatever. Uh, and so if you work intersubjectively, it's no longer clean. It's really quite messy. And you'll hear a lot about that in, the, in um, my Brad and I's uh, work uh, in the book, as well as Karen Moroda's and Aaron's uh, chapter as well. Aaron and Jessica Benjamin, this is the third thing now, and there's only four, so I'm almost there, Okay, <laughs> um, is the uh, theory of the third. There, if you're working this way, there had to be a new theory of like, well, what do you do with enactments? What do you do with interlocks? And um, so they, in this book, entered, uh, introduced the idea of the third. And Aaron says this, it's an effort to create a psychic space within which to think together about ways in which patient and analyst are similar and different, merged and separate, identified and differentiated, a place where they're able to achieve a third place, uh, third position beyond a transference, counter-transfer, interlock, interlock, and beyond binary thinking into transitional space of thirdness and intersubjectivity. And what begins to happen is um, another uh, theory, theory idea is that when you work out of this kind of intensity, um, there's this idea, theory of mutual recognition, which is an awareness of the other as a subject rather than an object. And it allows for the patient to also see you uh, as opposed to only being seen. Uh, an example I have of that, I have a patient who had, has an incredible intuition, but doesn't trust it at all. And um, that's been part of our, our work and, and also a high demand to be seen. But I also know that she's seeing me all the time, but she won't trust what she sees. And uh, when my mother was passing and I was flying back and forth, um, helping her, her die, um, I noticed that my mother had kept a, a Christmas cactus alive and she had written um, a little side note that said, see, I can grow things too, because she didn't really have a green thumb. When I returned, uh, when I went to see this patient, um, she had a cactus um, for me in her hand. She knew nothing about what was going on except unconsciously, but she also intuited that. And she saw me, and I had to val and I not had to, I wished to validate that. And it became a very important transform transformational experience for her to see that she gets it and she has it. And mutual recognition refers to that idea of someone not only being seen, which psychotherapy is set up to do, but how do we acknowledge that our patients also see? And it's in that mutuality of, of um, togetherness and recognition that I think one is, is being made well. I would like to make, I know we're, we're got a lot going on here, but uh, Jessica Benjamin, uh, when it is her idea of the moral third is such a valuable contribution to this con uh, conversation because she is talking about um, the moral uh, third referring to the problem of failed witness within society. And it's a very powerful uh, theory and stance that she takes on that. I, I love the, the Chris, Christmas cactus story because I have Christmas cactuses and they're blooming. One's white and one's red. And several years ago, my brother said, oh, my, I heard him say to my sister, my Chris, Christmas cactuses are blooming. So now whenever I see my mind bloom, I think of my brother, my younger brother, and his Christmas cactuses are blooming. And um, they always bloom at Christmas. Um, well, in our last minute, what are you writing? Um, uh, what are you reading? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, my, I think I have to say that I feel like my mission, if you will, in, in contributing to the literature and to training and all that sort of thing is to continue to make difficult, beautiful, theoretical theor um, stuff accessible to, to more. And that's why I started the certificate program and all those kinds of things and wrote this book. And so the one I'm working on right now that 
I think is closer than I think to being completed is simply a reference book of all the significant terms um, of uh, relational psychoanalysis. And um, I'm not quite sure. I think, I think I'm going to publish it as a reference book, um, although I may turn it into a, a, if you will, a storybook, if you will, or both. I don't know. But um, I've written, um, I think, a, um, I think I've covered every term and it's all written up and it's now needing to be, um, you know, edited and thought through and all that more. But um, so I'm pretty excited about that um, because I like to help people learn through experience first, but I want uh, my students and other people who are interested in this work and my work to be able to also reference the theory behind the experience. And so that's what I'm working on. You asked me what I'm reading. You want to? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, a very, in light of what we were just talking about, um, I've been very excited about Gatson uh, Beatty. I think I'm saying his name correctly. His article in Psychoanalytic Dialogues, a pref, uh, prefer, preferential option for the repressed psychoanalysis through the eyes of liberation theology. It's just very, very powerful. Um, I just read and have assigned to my students, in fact, the querying of relational psychoanalysis, who's topping whom by um, Kassoff, that um, it also um, broadens theory into uh, marginalized ide ideas and, and um, uh, theory and practice, I mean. Um, I also am a good friend of Karen Moroda, and she's writing a new book that should be coming out in the spring, and so I've had the good fortune of reading several of the galleys for um, that work, and she is another person who provides very accessible uh, student in mind uh, books that I'm very looking forward to having. And I love fiction and have been reading or uh, read uh, Baldwin's Giovanni's Room, uh, The Widows of Malabar Hill, Gentlemen in Moscow. And uh, as a professor at our school, we've been sharing different articles on uh, race and difference and writing posts and that sort of thing. So that's what I've been up to. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, you know, I've always thought of relational psychoanalysis as being so New York centric, but you're single handedly shifting the center of gravity to to the West Coast. So to Seattle. So congratulations. Yeah, and, and New Yorkers are so intimidating that I think why I did um, two two comparative analysis to my own is I had New York uh, super egos in my mind. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to wrap it up here. You've uh, Thank you so much, uh, Roy, for talking to us today and for putting together this book. Uh, well, thanks so much for having me, Philip. And I um, hope that we meet in person and and share more of life together. So thank I you. I hope so, so too. Yeah. So you have been listening to an in interview with Dr. Roy Barsness about his book, Core Competencies of Relational Psychoanalysis. Here at New Books and Psychoanalysis, a channel on the New Books Network. Please contact me, Dr. Philip Lance, Philip has one L, at gmail.com to let me know your thoughts and questions about the show. Thanks for listening.